Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Well, I didn't know if I would say anything about it tonight, but it's an interesting time to be alive because our president today came out and said that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, causing all kinds of dismay and dissension in the Middle East and the surrounding nations. So once again, the entire world is looking at the Middle East and Jerusalem in particular as the very center of world geopolitics. It just keeps happening and happening, almost like God is continually interested in what's going on in Jerusalem, even to this very day. Tonight we're going to read more of God's recounting the abominations of Israel and of Jerusalem in particular. And yet here we are today still talking about Jerusalem, still worrying about what happens in Jerusalem. And of course, there are the factions who have said, well, he, he's just inviting World War III now by making these kind of proclamations. But he's, he's saying something that the Senate voted on years ago. It, it's something that we've politically agreed on but have never moved on. So once he said that we were going to move our embassy to uh, Jerusalem, of course, my mind starts worrying. I start thinking about the Bible. I start... <laughs> right. Yeah, that's all coming too. But, but yeah, it's just funny to think about the fact that there is going to be some political leader rise up in the Middle East and part of his deal with Jerusalem is going to be that they can build a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and stuff. And a few years ago, that just seemed impossible. It just seemed like, well, that can't happen. But once you say that Jerusalem, again, is the capital of Israel, you can see them starting to negotiate with the folks. What are we going to do with the Temple Mount? That's where our temple needs to be. And how are we going to... You can just see things developing on the... And I don't know. I'm not forecasting dates. I'm not saying what's going to happen. But just very, very interesting that as soon as the world starts thinking, oh, well, North Korea, that's the, oh, well, you know, Brazil and what's going on, down, oh, social, oh, God goes, Jerusalem. And then everybody looks back to Jerusalem again as the center of what's going to happen in human history. And I just find it fascinating. But I can certainly see a Middle East peace pact in the works. Because there's going to have to be one now. There's going to have to be, yet again, another agreement. Or there's just going to be open war in the streets until there's an agreement. But Donald Trump, of all people, I thought, well, God can use him too. Yeah. The same way he used Saul in the Old Testament or the same way that he used Hezekiah. God can use anyone he puts in the White House, for good or for ill, as long as it's... You know, as long as he can talk through donkeys... I think we have to conclude that he can use anybody he wants. Yeah. But I just find it excessively interesting. So he said this during the campaign that he was going to do 
said he was going to do it, and he did it. Yeah, so keep your eyes open. Who knows what happens next? The, the fascinating thing to me is this has been a fact in Israel for years. It has been their capital. Yeah. That's where their government is. Right. Not Tel Aviv. Right. Turn to chapter 22 in Ezekiel. Now, I looked at several commentaries about Ezekiel 22. But of the five, I think that's right, five different commentaries that I've looked at, when they got to Ezekiel chapter 22, they all just simply restated what chapter 22 says in different words. They just picked slightly different words to just simply repeat chapter 22. Because chapter 22 kind of just says what it says. God doesn't speak in parables. He doesn't speak in riddles. He just lays it all out for Judah, for Israel, what their abominations are. And so when you all chose that we would work our way through the book of Ezekiel next, and I said, you all just want to see me do the work, I was very aware that these chapters right here, chapter 22, 23, and by the time you get to 24, God's going to say, well, mark the date. This is the date that Jerusalem is going to fall. But then after laying out yet another parable, then he starts talking to Ammon and Moab and Edom and Felicia and Tyre, and Tyre's king is going to be overthrown. And so God starts pouring out prophecies for the Gentile nations that are responsible in large part for the downfall of Jerusalem. And so that all gets interesting again. But this part of the book is just God, like I said last week, just laying out his case, just saying, I'm going to take you out of your land and I'm going to take you into Babylon and you're going to be given to the Chaldees, but I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to reestablish Israel eventually, but right now you're out of your land because of your horrible abominations. And then he just lists them and then he makes his case and he makes his case and he makes his case. Chapter 22 does the same thing again. So I'm tempted to just read it because there's not a whole lot of explaining that needs to be done. In fact, the introduction that I've done here right now so far tonight is probably the most comment I have on this chapter because to comment on this chapter would be to reduce it because it says what it means to say and God speaking lays out for Israel why these things are just, why it's appropriate that God pour out his wrath on them. When you get to chapter 23, God is going to assign names to Israel and to Judah, call them Ahola and Aholabah, two erring sisters who have gone off into their adulteries and their wicked ways with the surrounding nations. And so it's kind of parable-like in the way that he talks about their unfaithfulness and and it's very, very graphic. It's, It's really difficult to read, but... Chapter 22, not difficult at all. You're just wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and this is what you've done, and you're wrong because you did that. That's the whole of chapter 22. So I'm going to read chapter 22, and if something leaps out to one of you, then by all means, feel free to jump in and comment. But I'm going to try to read the whole chapter without a whole lot of comment because it says what it says. 
Chapter 22, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. Notice, this is about Jerusalem, the bloody city. The same city that we're all looking at again, that we're all concerned about again at this very moment, is the city where God has chosen to place his name, the very center of the worship of God. And now he's going to tell them how abominable they are because it's his city, because it's the place where his worship is, where he has placed his name. And you shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come, and that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed, and defiled by the idols which you have made. Thus you have brought your day near, and have come to your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations." and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you, you of ill repute, full of turmoil. Now, why would that happen? Why would the nations be mocking? Why would they be reproaching Jerusalem? Because once upon a time, under David and under Solomon, they were the grandest of kingdoms in the Middle East. And now God has reduced them to the point where they're being taken into bondage. They're being taken out of their city. And so they're a nation under siege. And so the surrounding nations that are secure are going to mock them and wonder at them. How could they have gone that far up and fallen this low? But God takes credit for it and says, I'm going to do that to you to bring you to reproach in front of all the Gentile nations in front of the very people that were your enemies, that you've been at war with, that you thought you were separate from, that you thought you were better than, those are the people who are going to be making fun of you, and rightly so, because I'm going to take you so far down. Verse 6, Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. Notice how often he mentions blood and the shedding of blood in his land that was supposed to be holy. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. And in you they have eaten at the mountain shrines. In your midst they have committed acts of lewdness. In you they have uncovered their father's nakedness. In you they have humbled her who was unclean in her menstrual impurity. And one has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. In you they have taken bribes to shed blood. You have taken interest 
and prophets, and you have injured your neighbors for gain by oppression. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. Behold, then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired, and at the bloodshed, which is among you. Can your heart endure, or can your hands be strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and shall act. And I shall scatter you among the nations, and I shall disperse you through the lands, and I shall consume your uncleanness from you. And you will profane yourself in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, is there anything vague about that? Is there anything that needs a great deal of commentary? This is God just plainly laying out his case. You've committed these abominations. You're nothing but guilty. I am completely just and right in the way that I am scattering you. Because you're the people who I chose. You're the people I gave my law. You're the people I sent my prophets. You're the people who knew what my regulations and expectations were. And this is what you've done. You have forgotten me. Profaned my Sabbaths. And bloodshed in my land. And shed blood in my land. Either one of those sentences is good. So verse 17, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Now after he's talked to Jerusalem, the city, the bloody city. Now he's going to talk to Israel, the house of Israel, the northern tribes that have been taken into the Assyrian captivity. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of the silver. You know, when you smelt silver, in the smelting process, you have to liquefy the silver. So you blow a flame on it. And as you blow the flame on the silver, eventually the particles drop out or come to the top and are brushed off. And God's saying, that's exactly what the house of Israel is like to me. They're just dross. They're the worthless parts of this process of refining them. So therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, therefore, behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it, in order to melt it. So I shall gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I shall lay you there and melt you. And I shall gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it. And you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Now, notice that he said, I'm going to gather you, in particular, gather you into Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar came down and attacked Jerusalem. That's the beginning of chapter 24, when God says, mark the day, Jerusalem's going to fall today. And what they end up doing? Burning the city. God ends up taking credit for it. 
God says, that's my wrath being poured out on you because you're just dross. Verse 23, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. Do you know what that word profane means? I'm alone up here, aren't I? <laughs> that word profane means common, as opposed to the things that are holy, that are separate, that are dedicated to the work of God. The everyday things that are unclean are the profane things. And here God says, by the way you treat me, by the way you treat my Sabbath, by the way you treat my law, you have made me like I'm a profane thing. The holiest one, the holy God, who is your only hope and preservation, you've treated me like an unclean thing. And I am profaned among you. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them. A couple chapters ago, we talked about that. God saying that the prophets, rather than building the wall, merely put whitewash on it. Like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. It looks good. It looks clean. They have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and defining lies and divining lies saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. There was nobody in the land willing to intercede between the wrath of God and build the walls so that they would defend the city. The city was guilty and there was simply no defense. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads declares the Lord God. So then chapter 23 starts. The word of the Lord came to me again, son of man. And here's the parable that he constructs of the two erring sisters. And the reason that I find this really, really interesting and fascinating is that God sees them as two erring sisters all the way back in Egypt. So even though Solomon loved his many strange women and chased after the gods of his wives, 
And so God divided the kingdom and took away 10 of the tribes from Solomon's posterity. Even though that all happened in time, God says they were two erring sisters all the way back in Egypt, which means in God's view, they were always northern tribes, southern tribes. They were always house of Israel, house of Judah. Because again, I think with God, since there's no time, and since he knows what's going to happen, because he's able to not just look into the future, but control and declare the future, he knew what was coming. And so here when he talks about them, he defines them as two erring sisters. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. There, in Egypt, their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin bosom was handled. And their names are Ahola, the elder, and Aholabah, her sister. And they became mine, and they bore me sons and daughters. And as for their names, God clears it up now, Samaria, the upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, is Ahola. And Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, is Aholabah. And Ahola played the harlot when she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. And she bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were the choicest men of Assyria. And with all whom she lusted after, with all their idols, she defiled herself. And she did not forsake her idolatries from the time in Egypt. For in her youth men had laid with her, and they had handled her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust on her. Therefore I gave her into the hands of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. So, in other words, God takes complete credit for the fact that Israel, the northern kingdom, went into the Assyrian captivity. God says that was because they lusted after the Assyrians. They wanted to be like the Assyrians. They chased after Assyrian gods. So, if they want to be like them, I handed Israel over to the Assyrians. And then, because of the way that they were brought into slavery and the way that they had to kowtow to the will of the Assyrians, God likens that to a sexual relationship in which, verse 10, they uncovered her nakedness, and they took her sons and her daughters because they slew her with the sword. Thus she became a byword among women, and they executed judgments on her. Now her sister Aholabah, that would be the southern kingdom, saw this. Yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, and her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. In other words, Jerusalem should have known, should have recognized that God was judging her sister, the northern tribes, and taking them into the Assyrian captivity. That the southern kingdom should have recognized that that's the very judgment of God if you go chasing after foreign gods, if you go chasing after foreign nations, if you forget your Sabbaths, if you treat God as a profane thing, then God is going to judge you. He did it to the northern ten tribes. He'll do it to us. 
And so God is saying, because they did not change their ways, because they did not repent, they're now more guilty than Israel was. Now her sister, Aholabah, saw this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she. And her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and officials, the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she had defiled herself. They both took the same way. So she increased her harlotries, and she saw men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, girded with belts on their loins and flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers, like the Babylonians in Chaldea, the land of their birth. And when she saw them, she lusted after them, and she sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her to the bed of love, and they defiled her with their harlotry. And when she had been defiled by them, she became disgusted with them. In other words, she hated them. And she uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness, and then I became disgusted with her as I became disgusted with her sister. Yet... She multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. And she lusted after their paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breasts of your youth. Therefore, O Aholabah, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will arouse your lovers against you from whom you were alienated, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all of the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and officers, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. That was the very thing that God says was what attracted them. Ahola and Aholabah were attracted to the fact that these were good-looking young dignitaries, good-looking young men on horseback with flowing turbans and dressed in vermilion. And God says, I'm going to bring those very people down on you looking just like that. Since you love them so much for that, those are the ones who are going to Come down on you, verse 24, and come against you with weapons and chariots and wagons and with a company of peoples. They will set themselves against you on every side with buckler and shield and helmet. I shall commit the judgment to them, and they will judge you according to their customs. So God has said, this is my judgment, and yet I'm going to commit my judgment to them. He is utilizing these foreign nations in order to judge Israel. And yet, as we continue reading through Ezekiel, we're going to see that God then judges the foreign nations who we use to judge Israel. So God is going to continue to hold everybody responsible. I will set my jealousy against you, verse 25, that they may deal with you in wrath. 
They will remove your nose and your ears, and your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters, and your survivors will be consumed by the fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I shall make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hand of those whom you hate, into the hand of those from whom you were alienated, and they will deal with you in hatred and take all your property and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup, which is wide and deep. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. And you will drink it and drain it, and then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, bear now the punishment of your lewdness and your harlotries. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholabah? Then declare to them their abominations. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and even caused their sons, whom they bore to me, to pass through the fire to them as food. Again, they have done this to me, they have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. Then, when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. Furthermore, they have even sent for men who come from afar to whom a messenger was sent and lo, they came, for whom you bathed and painted your eyes and decorated yourself with ornaments, and you sat on the splendid couch with a table arranged before it, on which you set my incense and my oil. And the sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and drunkards were brought from the wilderness with men of a common sort. And they put bracelets on the hands of the women, and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who was worn out by adulteries, will they now commit adultery with her when she is thus? In other words, they've been dressed up now. They've been decorated like they're women of leisure. So God is saying, now that you've got it good, are you still going to commit these harlotries with the foreign nations? And what do they end up doing? Verse 44, but they went into her as they would go into a harlot. 
Thus they went into Ahola and to Aholabah, the lewd women. But they, righteous men, will judge them, the women, with the judgment of adulteresses and with the judgment of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, bring up a company against them and give them over to terror and plunder. And the company will stone them with stones and cut them down with their swords. They will slay their sons and daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I shall make lewdness cease from the land that all women may be admonished and not commit lewdness as you have done. And your lewdness will be requited upon you. And you will bear the penalty of worshiping your idols. Thus you will know that I am the Lord God. Now when we pick up next time, we're going to pick up in chapter 24, which begins with the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. Ezekiel identifying the exact year, the month, the day that God said to him, son of man, write the name of this day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So God has laid out his case. Those two chapters combined is God telling them how guilty they really are, how horrible their abominations are, and how he feels not only like they are a, a wife who has committed fornications and adulteries, but also that they were daughters to him who bore him children, and then, and then they burned their children to foreign gods and used them as food. And so God says, you're guilty. You're guilty of bloodshed. You're guilty of breaking my Sabbaths. You're guilty of not following my law. And this is the reason that I have brought Babylon down on Jerusalem. God's made his case. Is there any question that God has made his case? Yes. I mean, he's, he's got every right to hold them guilty. And they didn't get away with any of it. The things they did in the dark, God has exposed in the light. And now he's going to hold them guilty for it. Now, like I said last week, if you just stop at this point in Ezekiel, it, it just seems bleak. I was reading today on Facebook somebody who was talking about how the church is the new and the spiritual Israel. And, of course, using all the common verses that you expect when somebody does that kind of replacement thinking. And it frustrated me when I read it because I thought, haven't you read the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the prophets and even the things that Paul says about the restoration of Israel? Because God's not finished with Israel. God has a lot to do with Israel still. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, who was a contemporary of Ezekiel's, he ends up saying, as long as there's sun and moon and stars, as long as the waves keep crashing against the shore, then Israel will continue to be a nation before me forever. So this, this whole idea that the church has now somehow replaced Israel, I can see that if you only read passages like what we read tonight. I can see that if you say, well, God is just angry at them, and rightly so. They've committed their abominations, and they've broken the law, and they've, they haven't followed through with the Sabbaths, and God has likened them to prostitute sisters. So, of course, God is angry at them. But if you stop thinking there, then you'll miss the marvelous grace of God 
that says you're that guilty and because of my covenant to the forefathers and because of my own unilateral promise that I made by myself, I'm also going to gather you from the nations I've scattered you to and I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to make you a chaste virgin. And that's why that chaste virgin language is so important. Here he says that they're, they're women who have chased after their illicit lovers. And yet he says, I'm going to return you to myself. Clearly, obviously, with Israel in the state that they're in, there's no way that they could come back to God. There's no way that they could come back and clean themselves up. There's no way that they're going to be able to impress God enough that he is going to be in covenant with them again based on their cleanness. God has to clean them up. God has to restore them. God has to gather them. God has to do that or it's just not getting done. And fortunately, all of the prophets speak with one voice in saying that's exactly what God is going to do. He's going to make them as guilty as they could possibly be. And then he's going to restore them. Last night at men's group, we were reading out of Romans 3. And we were reading out of the Psalms and out of Isaiah how everybody's guilty. And how nobody ever stirred themselves up to seek after God. And how all men are unclean. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Well, that's essentially what God is saying here. In the New Testament economy, we say, yes, that's true. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. And yes, it's true of us that we are all evil. We're all sinful. Totally depraved. We agree with that. But the grace of God is our hope. The grace of God is what is going to clean us up is what is going to make us pure and undefiled and spotless when we stand before God. It's going to be God that does that. The same thing that the prophets say about Israel. And if God will give us that kind of grace, how can we possibly say that Israel doesn't deserve it? Because we clearly don't deserve it. And yet we're going to get that grace, and all the prophets in the Old Testament say, and Israel is going to get that grace. Mm -hmm. So I think these two chapters are really important in terms of showing us how God views Ahola and Aholabah, how he views their guilt, and how he rightly is judging them. But as you continue through the book of Ezekiel, you're going to see God's faithfulness to his people because the calling of God. Is without repentance. He's not going to turn away from it. He has called them. He has chosen them. He has elected them. And he's not going to turn from that. He's going to correct them. And he's going to rightly correct them. But then he's going to restore them. And I keep saying it over and over again. If you don't see that in the Bible, then I don't see where you can have any hope that you're going to be saved by grace. Because you're as guilty as Israel is. And they're reliant on the grace and the goodness and the promises of God to restore them. So, who are you? You're every bit as depraved. Therefore, you're counting on the goodness and the grace of God to restore you. And Israel has far more repetitive promises of the restoration of God and of the national gathering and of all 12 tribes, and of the temple, and of David's greater son, they have those promises over and over and over again. I, I just don't see how you deny that. 
All right, there's that. Comments or questions? Grace is the way God works so he gets the glory. Yep. Grace is the way God works so that he gets the glory. And don't we see it all the way through the Bible? Mm-hmm. As soon as Adam and Eve run from God and hide and sew aprons, God shows up and kills an animal to cover them. I mean, right away, there's a sinner, and then there's God intervening and graciously accomplishing for them what they cannot accomplish. And it goes all the way through the Bible. It doesn't stop. So I just hope that you see that theme tonight, and we'll carry it with you because it should give you a great deal of confidence. It should give you a great deal of hope that even as bad as you are, God can elect, choose, call, predestine, justify, glorify you. Now, schedule-wise, it's cold out tonight, and it's December, and in years past, we have taken the month of December, and Tom and I have gone visiting a couple of other churches, but we've taken the Wednesdays, the midweek services, and we've uh, suspended them through the month of December in the past. So now that December is well upon us, and people are getting ready for their holiday stuff, and people are sick, there's so many viruses emaciating this uh, congregation. So Tom and I were talking about it at the beginning of this evening. We're going to regather here on Wednesday night, January 3rd. So between now and January 3rd, you have time to go do what you would like to do. Go visiting. Go find our friends and go visit some of the other churches that we know. And then they'll probably take Wednesday off too and you'll be there all by yourself. But don't come to GCA between now and January 3rd because we won't be here for the midweek services, which means that Wednesday night is an available night for the ping pong maniacs to come here and play ping pong. So, yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Anything else? Kind of plain, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty direct. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.